to the Borders and Globalization podcast. Welcome to our listeners. I'm speaking from the traditional territory of the Lekwegen peoples in the Salish Sea region. And today we are pleased to welcome Patrick Lozar, assistant professor in history at the University of Victoria. He works particularly on the native nations of the Upper Columbia River region and their experiences with the Canada-United States border. So our interview today focuses on the relationship between indigenous peoples and international borders. Welcome, Patrick Lozar. Thank you, uh, Benjamin, for, for inviting me and having me on the show. I'm, I'm pleased to be here and to, and to share. Thank you. But before we begin, Professor Lozar, can you briefly share with our audience your academic profile and your uh, research interests? Yeah, sure, of course. Um, well, first of all, um, it's important for me to uh, to, to mention um, the connection between my, my 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 personal background and my professional work in in, uh, in history. I'm a member of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes of the Flathead Indian Reservation in Western Montana, and uh, that uh, the background with my, my family and, uh, and my community has informed my research in uh, the study of history. And so I uh, went to graduate school and got my PhD at the um, University of Washington in Seattle to study uh, parts of uh, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes history and specifically the Kootenai uh, uh, bands history uh, and the relationship with uh, uh, Kootenai bands to Naha bands in uh, in British Columbia and, and, and Idaho. So my my work really is informed by my uh, my community ties and my family ties back home at the, at the reservation. But um, my research uh, broadly is on indigenous histories in North America and uh, and, and borderlands in the uh, Pacific Northwest, specifically the interior. Uh, Pacific Northwest and um, the, uh, the the ways that indigenous communities have had to deal with the Canada-United States border that has been drawn through their aboriginal territories uh, since since 1846. And so um, I'm working on a, uh, a book project at the at the moment, uh, and uh, on on this topic it comes out of my doctoral dissertation, uh, and. Um, I get to teach classes at the University of Victoria on indigenous histories uh, in, in North America. So it's a bit about my uh, my academic, academic profile. I've been at UVic since 2019, uh, and uh, and it's been it's been great so far. Thank you, Patrick Lazar, for this uh, biography. Very interesting. My first question concerns what you call um, ethno history methods and decolonizing indigenous geographies. What does it consist of, uh, and why is is this useful for our topic of discussion today? Yeah, I mean, ethno history uh, is, in broad terms, the kind of the, the marriage of history and anthropology, or uh, anthropological methods, or ethno uh, ethnography, or ethnography. Excuse me, and. Uh, all the associated uh, fields of archaeology, linguistics that go into uh, the the study of um, indigenous peoples in, uh, in all over the world. A lot of it actually began in the in North America with this kind of recognition that uh, anthropology studies culture and uh, history studies the past. How do we understand cultures in the past? 
And so being able to recognize the uh, uh, the continuities and changes in uh, in indigenous uh, culture over time is is kind of the the broad entry point to uh, ethnohistorical uh, methods. And so it's it's really important for being able to understand uh, how communities operate uh, historically and how they relate to the land and what that cultural tie to their their homelands looks like. And so approaching sources that are you know archive based that come from you know western uh, western sources of colonial governments and uh and and uh, and that are now housed in, in repositories and archives uh and approaching those uh documents with his kind of an ethno-historical eye along with recognizing the oral traditions of uh, indigenous communities that pass down their cultural knowledge uh, over time through uh, oral traditions, oral histories to uh, articulate their, uh, th- their past and their what, why they exist where they do uh, uh, in North America. And so being able to recognize those, uh, those methods uh, and what they can do for, uh, for telling these, these histories uh, in you know, more recent years that um, uh, allow us to, uh, to 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 get at some of these these questions about place and about belonging and about uh, relationships and communities um, and to kind of break down some of the uh, the colonial traditions of the archive that has been so divisive and so controlling over indigenous history um, and to recognize in, in many ways that these same documents uh, from colonial archives are actually uh, can, can be used as uh, foundational documents to tell a border story of an, an indigenous communities uh, that was never really intended to do to, to be as, as such. Um, you know, there are just many snippets in Canada's archives in Ottawa or the United States archives in Washington, D.C., that do reference continuities of indigenous uh, community uh, activity across the border, even though they didn't want, you know, cross-border activity, but they're talking about it in these uh, these letters and correspondence and reports. And so it's there and to be able to put them all together shows a, uh, a border story that is often missed uh, in, uh, in, in colonial archives. Thank you for this answer and for all of these clarifications. Very interesting. Um, Patrick, my new question is about the Pacific Northwest region. What what are the main characteristics of the Pacific regions uh, in terms of indigenous peoples and borders? You have spoken about that in the first question, but what is the history of this region when you connect the subject of borders and the subject of indigenous people? Yeah, um, I guess I'd start by saying, you know, uh, the border between uh, British North America or Canada and the United States came about in 1846. There are oral traditions of um, the um, community, interior Salish communities, Tanaha communities, who uh, who indicate that they're they've been here since time immemorial. An archaeological record that shows 
that uh, peoples have been here since you know 13,000 years ago. So there's a pretty big difference between 13,000 years and the year 1846, which is about yes. you know a bunch of years old. So it's much much deeper. The border is brand new in the grand scheme of things. So just to uh, to, to to clarify that, but the uh, uh, the indigenous history of the region, there's some similarities uh, in the BC part of the of the Northwest and the Washington, Idaho, Montana uh, part in terms of the way that indigenous communities experienced colonization, whether it's through uh, you know mining uh, rushes or uh, the establishment of reserves and reservations and the, uh, the treaty or lack of treaty history between um, uh, First Nations in Canada and, uh, and Native American tribes in the United States. And the Northwest region has, has some of these features and, 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 and has also some unique features uh, to itself compared to the rest of, uh, of North America. But um, the border, the 49th parallel, uh, really came about with the scratch of a pen in 1846 with the Oregon Treaty. But that's one thing to say on a document that there's, there's a border here, when on the ground, it took a long time for it to actually appear. And so if that happened in 46, that you don't see uh, enforcement of the border until, you know, uh, World War One or, or afterwards in the 19-teens. And so it takes a while for it to become an actual thing. But that doesn't mean that if there wasn't a, uh, a border patrol station or an inspection station or a checkpoint on a main thoroughfare in, a, in a, a valley between the Cascades and the Rocky Mountains, that the border didn't become a thing. It was reinforced by other means, by uh, establishing reservations for um, Native American tribes to to go to and remain on, or establishing reserves in British Columbia for the same purpose, and in creating those exclusive spaces uh, on, onto which um, Indigenous peoples were supposed to stay on, in a way, the border was uh, indirectly being uh, enforced. And so uh, that was happening all through the late uh 1800s and going into the 1900s. And so in some ways, it was a very porous border in terms of travel and movement, the continuity of uh, seasonal migrations for uh, hunting and fishing or, or, or gathering uh, berries and roots in the mountains and the valleys of the, of the Northwest. And I'm talking more specifically about the interior Northwest. On the coast, there's, a, there's many different dynamics that are pretty unique to this uh, uh, this this area that we're that we're in uh, that I'm in in, in Victoria, um, and so the uh, it, it takes different uh, uh, domestic and state and provincial laws to get uh, indigenous peoples to quit crossing the border and to uh, you know quit hunting on one side of the line or the other, and so it so it came about pretty incrementally. Uh, but through it all, it's 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 colonial violence that uh, and systemic violence that is uh, kind of reinforcing the border be, before you even get to the the 49th parallel line itself. So it's both a, a borderland and it's a bordered land in some ways at the same time. Thank you, Patrick Lozar, for this informations. 
moving on the next question, if you don't mind, let's talk about uh, the effect of the border on the indigenous communities of this region. What were their reactions facing the construction of this international border between Canada and the United States? What does the, the Pacific Northwest region uh, could tell us about it? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, they kind of alluded to uh, all the the border activity uh, and maintenance and regulation and enforcement that's happening by the Canadian government and the United States government uh, is happening on an incremental basis. So indigenous communities, the uh, the Salix Okanagan, the Sinaiqs Nation, the uh, Tanaka Nation uh, in the interior, they're kind of uh, uh, running into this invisible boundary line uh, in, in according to different situations, uh, different moments of enforcement. And so their responses are, are quite diverse. The responses range from, uh, you know, basically telling um, uh, local law enforcement, uh, we, we, we don't recognize your border because it's it, it's brand new. You know, it's it's not, it's something that is all of a sudden imposed in our territory. And we're going to continue doing uh, the things that we have done. Or yeah, I recognize if I uh, if I cross the border, I can get something I can buy something for cheaper down in the United States and then come back up to uh, to uh, to, to Canada uh, and, and consume. And the Canadian government saying, no, you are not allowed to do that. That's that's going out of. Canadian jurisdiction and people saying, uh, you know, too bad, basically. Uh, and so there were there were moments of trying to um, uh, reinforce in the minds of, uh, of people near the line who are frequent crossers of that invisible line to recognize and respect it, right? And and that happened, you know, only on an increment incremental basis. And it was an unfinished uh, process um, for the longest time in the late 19th century and going into the 20th century. There was uh, a good deal of taking advantage of the borders division of, of national jurisdiction uh, for uh, for a number of different purposes. Whether that's collecting annuities uh, that were guaranteed by either government on, on either side of the line, or to just go and be with community members in the northern part of their territory or the southern part of their territory, going down to cultural celebrations, to uh, to go and work together in uh, as the wage labor economy became a, um, a, a reality for, um, for indigenous uh, community members and families, and to basically be with each other in a social basis. Uh, and they would... Um, you know, kind of, kind of act as if the the border wasn't uh, a meaningful thing in their lives. But then they also reacted by recognizing that a reservation or a reserve could be the last remaining exclusive territory uh, in their government-to-government relationship with the federal government that they could actually ex- ex- um, uh, exert their sovereignty over. And so those those reserves and reservations became that much more important and it was bound up with identity. Identity being a related, related to a, uh, a tribe in the United States or a band in, in, in Canada. And so there is a political kind of reorienting 
by uh, by groups now that, that have now found themselves on either side of the line or not. And so there's kind of a doubling down on uh, the uh, this this new political identity that either Canada recognizes or the United States recognizes, and to make that that new identity, that uh, new kind of government structure in, on a reservation or a reserve, work for them. And so, in that way, the reaction is a recognition that you know the border represents that this is either the United States or this is Canada, and we have to work with Ottawa or Washington D.C. to uh, to to make the most of this this situation in a, in a in a colonial sense, um, and certainly that's happening by the uh, by the turn of the century in the 1910s to the 1930s. Thank you, Patrick Lazar. <laughs> uh, I would like now to talk about a recent court decision. Uh, in 2021, the Supreme Court of Canada rendered a very interesting decision on the relationship between borders and the indigenous peoples existing on both Sides of the border. This is the R. B. De Sotel case between the Queen and Richard Lee de Sotel. This judgment uh, was rendered on April 23, 2021. We see that history and historical evidence are very important elements in terms of the rights of indigenous peoples. What could be the implication of this decision? Uh, the Sotel decision in terms of indigenous people lives in the borderlands and also in terms of protection of their ancestral rights and also ancestral territories. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, and I'll kind of use it to uh, address one part of the other question you asked about, you know, what can the Pacific Northwest or the uh, Upper Columbia River region uh, tell us about uh, border issues, and I think that this this uh, RV Disatel case is is really important for showing what uh, what is happening out here and how that's going to have an effect on the rest of the Canada United States border, from you know from the Yukon to the Bay of Fundy, um, and so to give a little background on the uh, on the case. Uh, you know, the Sinaiks Nation, who in the 19th century saw, uh, you know, most of their territory was actually in British Columbia on the Columbia River in the Arrow Lakes region. They're also called the uh, Arrow Lakes people. And over the 19th century and into the 20th century, due to a number of different push and pull factors, found uh, their families and bands drifting further and further into the Washington state side of the border. And, uh, and many remained there for, uh, uh, for much of the early 20th century. But for the first half of the century, there were still bands in British Columbia, and they only later were uh, um, assigned to a reservation, or excuse me, a reserve in BC on the Arrow Lakes uh, by 1902. By uh, the year 1953, Canada is accounting all of the band members for the Arrow Lakes Band in, in, in British Columbia and recognizing that uh, the last remaining uh, band member on the list has passed away. And so Canada, uh, by again, by the stroke of a pen, says the Arrow Lakes Band of the Sinaiks Nation in Canada is extinct, which is a pretty bold statement to make uh, to say that a, a people are extinct. Many had drifted to... Um, 
uh, Tanaha bands and, and Okanagan bands, or Salix Okanagan bands in British Columbia. And uh, uh, I'd say probably the majority went to the Colville Indian Reservation in Washington State, uh, certainly by the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And so British Columbia says there are no Sinaites in, um, in Canada uh, or in, in British Columbia. And, and so it's, it would seem the story ends there. But by the 1980s, you see more and more uh, Sinaites people from Washington State uh, returning to their northern territories at the, uh, at the request of their elders, saying that is our territory. And we actually have not only ancestral ties to the place, but uh, you know, the, our, our ancestors are up there. Uh, and uh, we need to re reassert our presence and reoccupy our northern territories in, um, uh, in kind of the Valakin, Castlegar, Arrow Lake, Slocan Lake area part of, of British Columbia. And so for the past 30 years, certainly since the 1980s, there have been attempts to get the, the official um, recognition of the Sinaiks in, uh, in Canada to, uh, to, to, to proceed. And there's been different ways that's been done in terms of strategies, but one is, has been through the courts. Well, in 2010, uh, Richard Lee Disatel uh, goes and, and, and shoots an elk in, uh, in British Columbia, and then you know, and then goes and uh, gives himself up to the police, says, I'm an American citizen. Uh, I'm a member of the Confederate Salish and Kootenai tribes in Washington, and I don't have a permit, and I'm not a Canadian, and I shot this elk out of season. Arrest me. And he did this to initiate a, a case to get their re hunting rights recognized in Canada. So, uh, as, amazing. Uh, as, yeah, as, as the the case goes up through the BC courts, the appellate courts, and eventually makes it to uh, the court of uh, the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court basically decides uh, or, or has to make the de determination, according to the Constitution, all rights are protected for Aboriginal peoples of Canada. What is an Aboriginal people? Who are Aboriginal people of Canada? They determined through, as you, as you kind of suggested with the question, historical documentation shows that they've been around in what is now Canada for way longer than there's ever been a Canada or yeah, the crown, mm -hmm. you know, and the crown's uh, uh, claims to North America, right? And so uh, the court just determined that, in fact, they are Aboriginal people of Canada with hunting rights that are preserved. Now, that's a, that's a huge victory for the Sinaiqs Nation, but it, it's going to be, I mean, it's, it's a year on now coming up or so, and we're still trying to grapple with the potential after effects of this monumental decision in terms of um, Native American tribes in the United States who have historical ties to what is now Canada above the line and what, what are those rights are going to look like. Um, and so I guess I would say that, uh, number one, the part about historical documentation, I mean, there was uh, a, 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 a huge deal of um, work and research done to substantiate these, these claims to uh, a, a long-time heritage in, uh, in British Columbia for the Sinaiqs people um, that, you know, was, it was difficult to refute despite the, the province's ability or determination to do so. And so uh, 
So, you know, putting lawyers and historians to work uh, and with, with historical documents and records, uh, you know, laid that, that foundation for, um, for the, the case. And then I guess the second part is what, what's going to happen now? It's, it's hard to say. It's, don't ever ask a historian to predict the future, Ben. Uh, <laughs> okay. It, we're never I, good at it, but I can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, Native American tribes and First Nations uh, coming up with uh, new ways to exert those resource gathering uh, rights uh, in uh, in Canada, uh, probably on a case by case basis. Thank you for this overview of this amazing decision, the Sotel decision from 2021. Throughout this interview, we have seen that borders are legal constructs are legal constructions that can be bypassed by other legal realities. My last question is this one. Can we rethink, can we reconstruct or deconstruct these borders? In light of the consolidation of the rights of indigenous peoples, can we decolonize the state borders and how? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question, um, and it's 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 very present uh, today, and, and has been really in the past generation. Um, and it it goes back to a couple of things that are happening at the same time, um, and one of them is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, uh, which was uh, uh, established in two thousand seven and uh, Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Co Commission uh, that was, uh, you know, the final report was in 2015. So these two kind of major uh, developments in uh, recognition of the state's need to um, better address uh, First Nations and Indigenous issues are, are kind of coming together in, in, in interesting ways. And, in it, and they're coming together into border discussions. When it seems oftentimes that, you know, as Canada adro adopts the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, or UNDRIP uh, is the acronym, that that's a Canada thing, or when the United States adopts it, it's a U.S. thing. But uh, there's uh, there's impl implications for border issues, e even though it's, a, you know, a domestically embraced uh, um, kind of uh, declaration. And so... Uh, in one of the articles of the several different articles in UNDRIP, it says that uh, states should support and facilitate indigenous people's uh, uh, ability to uh, maintain relationships to each other across international borders or state borders and to uh, facilitate and support uh, the social, economic, uh, political uh, you know, uh, social relations, uh, cultural relations, excuse me, uh, across the line. And so that is in UNDRIP and Canada and British Columbia have both embraced UNDRIP. So there's, there's a foundation uh, to, uh, to allow for that, that to happen. At the same time, uh, in Canada's uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the 94 calls to action, one of the calls to action is to begin to uh, uh, con compel Canadians to kind of dismantle this thing called the doctrine of discovery. 
And it's the doctrine of discovery uh, that has allowed uh, the Crown and the United States to claim uh, Aboriginal territory uh, in North America without, you know, uh, without asking for permission from uh, from Indigenous peoples. They see Indigenous peoples as just mere occupants of the land. And so when the Oregon Treaty of 1846 uh, defines the border and makes claims to this part of uh, North America, Indigenous space that was unseated, it goes, it's justified through the doctrine of discovery. So UNDRIP is saying support Indigenous peoples across borders, and the, uh, the TRC is saying uh, let's dismantle the doctrine of discovery, which is the foundation of the border uh, out here. So both of those things are are, are in, um, uh, in in policy dialogues, or they, they they should be more and more. And indigenous communities themselves, who've been saying this, you know, for the past half century, uh, this border is it is a fiction to us, and it and it has been for a long time. And we we seek the. Uh, the support to continue to cross the border uh, for uh, either social purposes or ceremonial purposes or um, to reconnect to the land on either side of the border uh, and and how that can be done with uh, with with government support and to you know better educate uh, CBSA the Canadian Border Border Services. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, U.S. and Customs and Border Patrol on Indigenous border rights and crossing yeah. issues, um, and to uh, be be more sensitive and supportive of um, that unique that unique uh, border experience for Indigenous people that's different from all other North Americans or immigrants to North America who who face the border in a different way. It's it's still still pretty fresh and, and new. So. I think those those kind of policy things are going to be uh, is what what's happening towards uh, toward decolonization in a more material uh, sense. Professor Lazar, thank you very much. Um, do you want to add something to share with our audience about this topic of today, the relationship between indigenous people, First Nation or tribes, mm -hmm. and the borders and the borderlands? What what, what could be your last? Uh, message from from the people who are listening us. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I guess I would say that uh, you know, there's to, to speak to the resilience of uh, indigenous communities as they uh, pursue um, uh, greater autonomy and, uh, and and sovereignty across borders and uh, and, and developing and maintaining relationships across borders, especially at a time in COVID, because COVID has been pretty brutal because the border was actually completely shut down. And that shut down in a, in a much more uh, visceral sense uh, in the past two years than it had been in, in, in previous years, uh, because there was literally no, no, no traffic across the line that, uh, that kind of... Re reinstated or reinvigorated almost some of those uh, those divisions uh, and uh, reasserted those divisions. Excuse me. Um, and so to kind of recognize the, uh, the the continuity and the resilience of of communities to maintain relationships to each other across this this border that has been so uh, so present in our 
uh, our lives these these past several years with with the COVID pandemic, um, and uh, and to maybe see as that that as a uh, a place from which to go despite these uh, these these boundaries and barriers that uh, that that kind of flare up uh, at times. Thank you for the last the, your last thought. Uh, very uh, powerful. Um, Patrick Lozar, thank you very much for participating in our podcast series. It was a real fascinating discussion. Thank you again for all these informations. And um, I, I, was, I enjoyed a lot the, our conversation. Uh, this was uh, the Borders in Globalization podcast. Today, we were with Patrick Lozar, Assistant Professor at the University of Victoria. Thank you all for your attention and see you soon for the next issue. Patrick Lazar, see you soon in Victoria on the campus of Victoria. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you very much.